morning, everybody. It's Lisa Salberg, founder and CEO of the HCMA, here with you for another episode of Tales from the Heart, a podcast filmed live on Facebook uh, from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And today, my co-host, Dr. Patient, Alex DeFeria, who is practicing out of University of Pennsylvania right now. And we have a very long history, one that he remembered before I did because he was one of the very many patients and clients and warriors of the HCMA before he became Dr. Alex. So Alex, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Nice to have you here today. It's January. It's 2023. Somehow I feel like we're still just in January 2020 and none of that really happened. Doesn't it feel like that sometimes? Yeah, it's a muggy day here in Philadelphia. Pouring rain here in Jersey. And I understand one of our colleagues in Iowa is in a snowstorm. So wherever you are, whatever the weather, thanks for joining us. So today it's January. It's the start of the year. We all make take that time at the end of one year to kind of revisit. And then we have to plan and setting a plan in HCM is really important. We want to stay on top of things. It's the best way to ensure that we're as healthy as we can be. I've asked Alex today to talk about this from two different perspectives. As a clinician treating patients with HCM in a busy clinic, what do you want to see every year from your patients? Number one, what tests are we doing? And secondarily, what should they come to you prepared to discuss when they are seeing you once a year and planning their year? You know, it's interesting since I've been now technically in practice as an attending for seven months, I'm finally starting to get returns. I've been seeing HCM for years, um, but so I've seen a lot of new patients. And, and I do think it's interesting for their first visit with me, I am usually not the first cardiologist they've seen. I'm a lot of times the fifth, sixth cardiologist they've seen. And so it is, I think sometimes can be jarring because it's a very different visit than every other visit they've had. Like for my new patients, I see them for an hour and a half. And that is with a genetic counselor and we go through their family history and ask questions they've probably never been asked before. And so it's a lot. So I try and, you know, synthesize it in a way that they can understand because most of them never looked at their MRI, never looked at their echo, never been explained what genetic testing is or why we use the medicines we use or do the things we do. And so I've tried to synthesize it in a way that's palatable and actionable and not put too much on their plate early. And then depending on how I feel like it went, I'll either see them six months later or maybe a little bit earlier than that because they might need to be seen sooner to talk more about kind of what we talked about the last visit. But the things that I've noticed, a lot of my patients are interested in becoming more active and in the past, they've been told, don't do anything until you see your HCM doctor. And so that has been good to like kind of encourage people to get active again at their own pace. And sometimes it's understanding what kind of exercise is easier for us. Yeah, we're probably not going to be doing HIIT training and like really rapid, intense, fast workouts. We need a warm up. You know, we're going to have to ease into it. And you'll notice that, you know, once you ease into it and you figure out what you like, you can do it for a lot longer than you realize. And a lot of it's on the right medications and super hydrated and things like that. So I think exercise has been a big thing that I've talked to patients about. You know, there's a lot of different buzz now about new medications for weight loss and things like that, which I actually have had some patients do very well on as kind of a boost to get over that initial hump of losing weight. 
and then they feel better and then they want to exercise more and then they start losing the weight on their own. And so, you know, I think there's been a lot of good conversations about those kinds of changes and with like the new years and the new year's resolutions and things like that. I've had some really great conversations about that. So that that's something that's come up a lot. And then in terms of what I would hope for patients, you know, usually we do this co-management model. Again, I see patients that have already seen cardiologists. I tend to see them once a year and then in between once they're stable once a year and in between they're seeing their cardiologist. So they're at least seeing someone every six months. Sometimes I'll see them every six months and they'll see their cardiologist in between. And I, I think it's important because making sure that they get functional evaluations regularly is something that there can be disparity in the community about, you know, how often do you put a patient on a treadmill, see what they can do, see what their hearts look like with exercise. Oh, they don't have obstruction. Well, have you seen what their hearts look like when they're running or trying to run? And when they're super symptomatic, getting yearly evaluations, I try and get them yearly, but at least every other year, if they can't make it every year to see, you know, how do they do on a treadmill? How do they feel? What does their heart look like? I think is important. And that's something I've been trying to remind my patients of um, because it can kind of slip away. And then so that stress echocardiogram at intervals for the population who may have a very small gradient when they have the resting echo, but to see what happens when they're challenged. Yeah. So let's talk for just a moment on the concept of a postprandial stress echo. Can you explain what that is? Because it's coming up a lot lately. Yeah. I call it don't study for the test, just be normal when you go for your test. What's yeah. a postprandial stress echo? Yeah. And so that's one of the things I was getting at when I was saying you're probably going to get asked some questions other people haven't asked you before when you see me. If you have obstruction, particularly, some people that we don't think have obstruction sometimes have these symptoms too. And maybe it's that we haven't found the obstruction. But in patients, typically with obstruction, when you eat that big meal, blood kind of gets shunted to your belly to digest that food. And anything that decreases return of blood to the heart makes that left side of the heart that's thick less filled with fluid. And that obstruction or the difficulty of blood getting out of the heart can get worse. And so a lot of patients will say, you know, Thanksgiving, ate a huge meal. I was white the rest of the day. I felt palpitations. And if, you know, palpitations is a medical word, the way I describe it is an uncomfortable awareness of your own heart. Most times people have no idea they have a heart. You know, it's just kind of doing its thing and but when you have this uncomfortable, like, mm, I feel this pounding in my chest, that's what doctors tend to use the term palpitations for. And so after big meals, you can feel chest discomfort. You can feel these palpitations, fatigue. If you try and go up an incline or a flight of stairs after a big meal, sometimes you just have to call it quits. And so that is the postprandial symptoms due to that worsening obstruction. And so a lot of times clinicians will order tests and say, eat a big meal and come in and do the test, which is usually the opposite of what every cardiac test is. And the idea being they're going to try and bring out as much obstruction as possible. I personally think that's a little torturous <laughs> as someone that has done these tests every year. But, you know, if, if it's somebody that you're really like having a hard time, they have all of the symptoms of obstruction but you just can't catch it on echoes and they keep coming in and we don't see any obstruction. It's one option to try and induce obstruction to make sure what you're really feeling is there during the test when we're looking at you. You bring up a point and, and I'm going to admit that 
you know, social media is what it is. And, and I belong to a couple of groups online that support the transplant community. So what I'm going to say kind of works for both transplant and HCM community. You can't study for medical tests, people. You can't be good for a couple of days to get your sugar under control and then go back to eating poorly and expect your doctor to be able to use those test results to treat you properly. And you can't make yourself your best you to go do a stress echocardiogram hydrate perfectly, rest perfectly, don't eat a big meal because that's not normal life. You need to replicate normal life so your chosen healthcare providers know who you are, where you are, and how to help you. Can you speak to studying for the tests? Yeah. I mean, I tell my patients this all the time, not just with stress echoes, but when I, you know, we do yearly monitors where you wear those patches on your chest is what we use are patches, but I say, do everything you normally do while you're wearing that monitor. Do everything you normally do when you come in to do your stress test. Because, yeah, I treat you when you feel well, but I really want to know when you don't feel well. Because What triggers that? that? What triggers that? And how can I make you feel better? I, I have had this conversation with so many people over 20 years, 27 years, 28 years. Damn, I'm old. But... We keep digging into this same concept. And I was just very surprised that it came up in a transplant place. Like, and they're waiting for a transplant. They're like, well, I'm, I was really good for two days. And I'm like, but what did you do on the third day, honey? Like, we want you to get to the finish line. Yeah. Don't, don't try to rig the, the test. Yeah. So anyway, every year, patients should at least see their cardiologist. At least every other year, a center of excellence, if that's the way that they have to roll. Yeah. Is that, that a good idea? You know, I, I love to see my patients at least yearly. Um, mm -hmm. Things change. You know, this is a dynamic disease. Things change day to day. Every patient I see will say, I have really good days and really bad days. And so, you know, I try and see them every year. Some, for some people, it's not feasible. You know, when I was a kid, we were hours away from the centers of excellence. And, it, and that most, some people don't even have it in their state. And so that, but I do think that there is a lot of value from a center that sees a lot of HCM, that has a specialist that can treat some of the, you know, the niche issues that come with this condition. And I have respect for a lot of cardiologists that treat it out in the community. It's just hard to, if you don't see it every day, it's just hard to stay up to date and to know what the newer therapies are and how to stay up to date with screening and to even to do cascade screening of all these family members. So there's a lot of value in coming. I think additionally, the community cardiologists, and we love our community cardiologists. On average, we've done the calculations. They see about 10 patients with HCM in their entire practice. And with the varied anatomies that are HCM, the likelihood that they've seen somebody just like you before, well, very, very, very rare. So we want to make sure that you're being seen by people who see you every day and treat people like you every day and have really finessed the art that is managing these patients. This is, this is science and art together because you have to have the bigger vision. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah. And, and one benefit of some of the newer therapies is that a lot of the community cardiologists are hearing about these new therapies and not everywhere prescribes them. So that has driven people that otherwise wouldn't have been sent to a center of excellence to come see us, uh, which is 
been one benefit is that people are hearing more about the disease, thinking more about centers of excellence. And these, and I, you know, it's nice for me because I'm making relationships with community cardiologists and giving them a call after I see the patients. We're talking about what to do long term. And so I think everybody's learning and moving forward together, which I think is the best way to do it. Because it, it can't just be the centers of excellence because there's so many patients out there. So the community engagement has been really nice. So let, let's talk some numbers for a second. We're at the start of 2023. We're talking about planning for the year. So I've been planning my year too for the HCMA and the, the, our bigger community. So you can argue some numbers and you can say there's going to be some asymptomatic low risk people here. So we're never going to hit 100% of the, the total possible diagnosed because that means we would image everybody and we would know everything about every heart. And we're not going to do that. But if we were to be able to, there's approximately 1.3 million people by today's population living in the United States with diagnosable hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, either with imaging or genetics. That's kind of a mind-blowing number because right now there are under 175,000, some people say 150,000 people diagnosed and being treated actively for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or at least have it in their medical records. So I always kind of thought being in the transplant community made me rare, right? But statistically speaking, we're as rare with HCM as a transplant patient as if not more so, because in total, there's about 200,000 people who've gotten these organs and we're about the same number of patients currently living. So we got to go find the rest of those patients. And when we do, their community doctor is going to work with a center, we hope, help maximize the care. The community doctor is going to learn more about them and be able to handle a little bit more, but we're still going to need that specialist. And that relationship building is critical to making sure patients get the best care and have the advantages of a community cardiologist and an expert. Yeah. So that's where we're going. Yeah. That's where we're going. Even this week, you know, I, you know, on average, I probably see at least six new HCM patients a week and that's going to grow here because we're, we need more <laughs> patients being seen. We need a bigger boat. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I'm seeing patients that have been diagnosed for years and never had any fam family screening. And with that comes more education with the community physicians and either to refer or at least have a conversation with the patient to tell them, tell all of your first degree relatives that you have this and that they need to get an EKG, an echocardiogram and a visit with a cardiologist. That kind of education, I think it's, is going to continue to grow, but it's still a big problem. We're missing a large boat of patients. HCMA is going to go out and find a bunch of them this year. And I'm going to talk a little bit about some programs in a minute on how we're going to start to do that better. What else? Let's go back to the, the theme of the day, because, you know, it's tales from the heart. We follow our hearts and conversations and we get off course. So I'm bringing us back to course now. Patient with HCM at the beginning of the year should be planning, okay, I need to see my cardiologist in whatever month is their anniversary month. So I need to plan for June to go to the doctor. So let's make that appointment sooner than later. So I get my choice of appointment time and I'm not frustrated that it's May 31st and I'm asking for a June appointment and they can't see me till August. Yeah. So ask in advance, get it on the calendar, organize your thoughts, Reflect upon how you're feeling, where you think you want to be, where you are. Is there a path to get there? And how can I work with my team 
to ask questions to help me get there. You brought up some really good points about the new medications, which I'll talk to you about in a minute. But no, we're not talking about myosin inhibitors here. We're talking about something different. How to have those conversations. What's new? What might I benefit from? And getting that information, getting your imaging tests done at your center if possible. That's HCMA speaking, not UPenn, but I think their imaging is better at a center. You know, I'm an echocardiographer half the time. So I do the echoes and I read the stress tests. And so I think there is a, and something that's understandably very confusing for patients is a stress test for HCM is a very different test than what the average cardiologist orders and calls a stress test. And so when I say, I want to do a stress test for you to see how you're doing from an HCM standpoint, I am talking about an echocardiogram where we look at your heart when you're just relaxed. And then we put you on a treadmill and have you go as far as you can. And when you get really symptomatic, you know, I can't do this anymore. Then we do an echo again. And I want to look at your heart when you feel bad. And that answers a lot more questions for me than the typical test we do for coronary disease and heart attacks and things like that. And so that that's one important difference that patients, I try and I explain it to them so they understand the importance of coming here because we have very specific protocols on how we do this test. So I don't want you to go get a test somewhere and then it's just not as helpful and then feel bad saying, I'm sorry, we, we didn't get the answers we needed with that test. And, yeah, so and then we have to redo times, it and your insurance company is not always happy yeah. about that. And so that's why we try and just, you know, wait until they come here to get those tests done. The best example I can give somebody as to why, why this is the case, it, it's not about who wants the billable, okay? If you go to your community cardiologist, they may take about 50 images of the heart and take their measurements from there. And for most people, that's adequate. In an HCM center, their protocol may take 250 pictures of your heart at different angles and get different images. So it's a much more robust image of your heart. All of my colleagues are very happy to let me read all of the HCM studies because on average, ours are about twice as long. We are really digging deep. And I work with the sonographers. Um, They text me and they say, Alex, this patient has SAM. It looked like they should have outflow tract obstruction, but I'm not getting a good gradient. What do you think? And then we work with them to get the right images to make sure we're not missing anything. So that just leads to more images and a longer test, but you know, you don't want to have to do it again. And so there's just some advantages to having it done here where we do them a lot. We see a lot of it. And one would say the same for cardiac MRI, correct? A cardiac MRI similarly, because you know, you want to make sure that wherever you're getting the MRI done, that they can do the sequences or the types of images that they can get really good pictures of the heart that they can, a lot of times you can quantify how leaky valves are on MRI if you do the images the right way. And there's different maps that we use to look for scar and to look for inflammation and things like that. So a lot of times, if we're not sure it's HCM, those like more detailed images can help guide us in one way or another. Like, could this be something else like Fabry disease, which can look just like HCM, but it's actually a glycogen. It's a, it's a different disease with a different treatment. Right. And so MRIs in the right hands can be very, very helpful and can change the course of your disease. And so, so you want the imaging done at your high volume center when possible. And MRI should be repeated every what? Three to five years is the. That, that's what I've been doing, especially mm-hmm. if it's someone that, you know, it's funny. It's, it's on both spectrums. Someone that's pretty sick had a little bit of scar, but I'm thinking is progressing over time. I will do one every probably three years to five years. And then someone that has not quite developed 
the disease on that other spectrum. Maybe they carry a genetic change that we know can cause HCM in their family. If they haven't quite gotten there, they've got a couple subtle findings, but nothing significant yet. Those people, I'm also very interested in exact measurements of how thick the heart is. If there's scar developing, which scar is not something that you can answer with an echo, you need an MRI. So a lot of times those two opposite spectrums are the ones that I'm doing more frequent MRIs in because I don't want to miss someone transitioning from normal you know, to HCM. genotype positive, no disease to I have disease now. And sometimes echo just doesn't quite get it as well as an MRI does. And I think that's something important. I just went through this yesterday with somebody. They were very concerned over the differences between their echo and their MRI. And I said, no, 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 no. MRI measurements on average are a little bit thicker. They're a little bit higher. And the ejection fraction is a little bit more variable than what you're going to see on your echo. And they asked me which which, um, EF was right. And I laughed and I said, you know what? I'm not really sure. And I don't know if anybody can answer that question because it was always measured on echo. And are we always overestimating or always underestimating on echo? But those are our normal numbers. So we stick with them. That's a good point. I mean, technically in the literature, they would say MRI is the gold standard because they are measuring volumes of blood in the heart at rest and volumes in the heart when the heart is squeezing. And so it's that difference in volume that allows you to calculate the EF or how much blood is going forward. Whereas with echo, there's variable ways. You know, some people will estimate how well the heart's squeezing by looking at it and say visually. Some people will estimate with more detailed things. So I think that the confusion comes in in that there's multiple different ways that people estimate how well the heart's squeezing. And you're right in that MRI tends to be slightly lower than what echo a lot of times shows. Keep your measurements in the spectrum of which test it is and in in those norms as we continue to evolve in our understanding of cardiology and technology and which is the actual right and wrong number. So we we know where we sit with the echoes. So I want to pivot from, from Dr. Alex to patient Alex and say, when you think about your, what do I have to do this year with my HCM management What's your little checklist? What do you go through? I got my device replaced last year. So that's a big one. Um, That was my second device. Uh, So making sure, and I didn't have my my remote monitor for a while because those were on back order. So constantly getting, making sure that all of that, that's an important part. If you do have an ICD, you know, staying on top of your ICD care, um, believe it or not, for those of us that have had them for a long time, you tend to not even think about it now that it's in there. And so making sure that, you know, you're seeing your electrophysiologist, getting the remote monitoring set in at the right times and that it's next to your bed or wherever it needs to be. So that was one thing that I, um, that I had to get right, but I did. The other thing that changed is, you know, we moved and I used to walk to work every day and I don't walk to work anymore. I take a bus and I have to be much more intentional about doing daily something, some sort of exercise. Um, and so that's something that I've, I've kind of tried to keep my mind on this year is, you know, I need to constantly be moving, you know, trying to take the stairs if I can, walking as much as I can, um, because, you know, life is busy. You know, we have a one-year-old baby and work is busy and it's much harder to 
find the time those things that I used to do um and so I think that that is my biggest thing um you know my cardiologists are very on top of me about my care so um they you kind of work with them all don't you yes I do (laughs) And and so you know they are constantly, you know, you're due for a stress echo. You're, you know, you need to get a visit. So they help a lot with that too, but we have a very hands-on team here. So they're like that with a lot of our patients. But yeah, it's, I think for me, the intentionality of, of being active and trying to stay active because this is a condition that your symptoms can sneak up on you and you don't realize you're altering your lifestyle to cater to how you feel. Until all of a sudden you've gained however much weight and you stop taking the stairs and you, and things like that. And so I'm trying to be more intentional about daily exercise in some way or another. I hear you on that one. I think wearable technology keeps us a bit accountable. And if you get to the end of the day and your step count isn't where it should be, you're like, oh, I got to work on that tomorrow. You don't beat yourself up over a bad day or a day off, but you got to... I will pace my office as I'm talking sometimes just so I'm getting in some steps. I don't know if they're the best steps ever, but I'm moving. I'm moving. Uh, And that's anybody needs to do that. In terms of your HCM testing, do you get an annual echo? What do you do for your imaging and your event monitoring? Yeah. And so I get annual echo, some sort of imaging of my heart yearly. We tend to do we try and do yearly stress echoes um, on our patients. And then every once in a while, sometimes we'll alternate and do a little bit more and do a cardiopulmonary exercise test. So maybe every two years we'll do that. That might be just because our center is more heart failure minded than some other places. So my mentor who trained me and started the program here, Dr. Owens, is a heart failure transplant trained doctor. And so what, and the, for the patients out there that are listening, these CPETs or the cardiopulmonary tests, you probably recognize them because it's the really annoying test where we either put something in your mouth or a mask on your face to measure how well essentially your heart is, is keeping up with you while you're exercising. And it's an objective way of us knowing how you're doing. And it's one thing to say, I feel great. I feel great. You know, a lot of us will always say, I feel great. But the treadmill is not going to let you get around how you really feel. And so those VO2s that we, we record with CPETs, let us know how you're doing over time. And we're going to be your doctors for a long time. And so we will see how you're doing functionally with that test. And that's just more information because the last thing we want to do is realize you are not okay when you really haven't been okay for years and just couldn't, didn't want to admit it. In reflection, I feel like I'm at the confessional. I didn't do VO2s except for in a clinical trial. And, and I was doing them a bit in a clinical trial towards the end of my HCM heart, but I really was lying to myself and everybody else. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I was not fine. I was fine at the moment because I was sitting upright and I was breathing. And I'm like, okay, I'm fine right now because I don't feel like I'm dizzy and I'm going to fall over, which I feel like sometimes. So I would answer that I was fine in that moment. But looking at my life and seeing how bumpy the road had gotten, how many good days and bad days and bad days and okay days and bad days and okay days and no matter good days. And you don't realize as that kind of bumps to a a grind at the end, right? Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, now I'm in trouble. And when I realized I was in trouble, I almost waited too long. I almost missed my window. 
So to know that you're going towards a particular destination, even if it's not a great destination, you can plan for the trip. Yeah. And we all need time to get this stuff done properly. Mm-hmm. So I would encourage what you're saying to be followed. Like do these yeah. tests, inquire, track yeah. yourself objectively. Yeah. And not like, not every center, not every place is, is as, you know, stickler about doing it every other year. So, you know, if you're not getting that, ask, oh, do you think it would be helpful? You know, I, I love when my patients come in with questions because that means they're engaged. They've been reading. They, they want to know more. The ones that I'm concerned about are the ones that are very quiet because either they're engaged and they know what's going on. They don't want to talk about it. Or maybe they just want to completely just put this disease out of their mind and just keep living life. And I'm not saying you need to think about this all the time, but once a year, do your check-in. Yeah. Yeah. Just give me the hour and a half and then we'll chat about it. And then as long as everything's great, go live your life. And, and that's, that's really what we're trying to do here, right? We're not trying to tell people how to live their life. We're just trying to help them live the best quality of life that they can with the resources currently available. And if you don't really know where you are, you don't know what services to ask for or what's even available. So talk about what's going on. I'm going to pivot here for a second because I'm I'm looking at a couple of projects right now and I want to let everybody kind of know and get a little feedback from them. I'm engaged right now with one of the online talk therapy uh, apps and seeing about bringing some of those services to HCM patients. Now, I know you're in a big city, you're in Philadelphia, you have a pretty large mental health service attached to the hospital and attached to the transplant program. But there's a challenge in getting access to good therapists in one's community. And I really think there might be a role for online telehealth type visits with therapists. What would you think about an idea like that? Yeah, I mean, I think therapy is like one of the most important yet least talked about aspects of this disease. It is a big deal to get diagnosed with this, whether you're 15 and have to quit playing the you know competitive things you used to like, and that's changing, but still, it's gonna be an, a change in your life once you're diagnosed with this, or whether you're 70, I'm like, oh my gosh, have I had this this whole time? And then you're just kind of recounting things that happened in your life and thinking, could that have been related? And then also there's a lot of like thinking about how this affects my family. And there's a lot of guilt, um, which doesn't get talked about in the visits a lot. And, and I do think that, that therapy is, is valuable, very valuable. And so, you know, sometimes we can get patients in through social work and things through our clinics, but a lot of times that's not enough and there are not many visits. And, and so I think it's a great idea. It'd be interesting to at least see patients try it and see what their feedback is. I, you know, telemedicine used to be something that was like, oh, that doesn't seem very great. But with the pandemic, it works. It became, you know, it works. It doesn't work for everything, obviously. Yeah. But there's so much you can do here and just discussing. I mean, you're discussing yeah. how you're feeling and it's emotional and that can be depicted. Yeah through Zoom or a phone call, whatever your app of choice is. So um, we're going to try to build that out. Additionally, I just want to kind of talk about HCM Awareness Day. It's coming up February 22nd. And I want to share some good news. Yesterday in the State House in Utah, 
the health committee met and moved along a resolution to recognize HCM Awareness Day to the full House and Senate. And I suspect that that will move through quite quickly. The state of Connecticut passed a resolution last week and the state of Ohio the week before passed a law. So we have resolutions, proclamations, and laws. Laws go on forever, and that's nice. Um, But when we can't get that, we get proclamations and and resolutions. We're going to be distributing a way for you to ask your state to uh, recognize HCM Awareness Day as well. So look for some of our social content on that, and you can reach out to your state. That's our starting point to start discussing that the Healthy Cardiac Monitoring Act with all of your states so that we can make sure all children have their heart health history evaluated. So all those good things are happening. So there's been a couple of other things in the news. Um, so we're going to current events now. And I want to discuss a particular NFL game. Lisa does not talk football. So, you know, there's something going on here, right? So Demar and the, the chest blow and the cardiac arrest and the response. What were you thinking? Um, When I saw the replay, it looked pretty cardiac to me. Um, And I think, you know, in the United States, especially with football, we are more used to seeing neurological injuries like concussions and things like that. Right. Um, For some reason in Europe, and I am a soccer fan, um, you know, a lot of times you see videos of sudden cardiac death on the field in soccer. And so I feel like they've seen it a lot for whatever reason. Um, So I think this one was like particularly jarring because the wide community in the United States is more used to seeing someone go down and then be altered and have concussion-like symptoms. So to see a player get up and then just drop with no uh, even intention of trying to break their own fall is very concerning for no perfusion to the brain, which can happen when your heart stops or when you're in a rhythm that your heart is not able to pump blood well. And so, you know, I am not going to act like I know what happened to him. I know there's been a lot of speculation online with a lot of doctors saying this is what this was. And I think it's very hard to say that without having any of the data. What I will say is that the NFL um, does screening of their athletes when they come into the NFL. I'm not specifically privy to what happens after the initial screening, but I believe within NFL and NBA and other large things, they get echocardiograms um, when they start. Some do and some don't. You can waive it and not do it as my understanding. I don't believe it's a requirement, but a lot of them are getting better screens now. It, It varies sport to sport and level of competition. Yeah. And so per their the information that's been released thus far, he had an abnormal heart rhythm, needed CPR, and needed defibrillation is what they said. And so something happened to his heart rhythm. And there's many things that can cause this, whether you have underlying structural heart disease like HCM or something else, and maybe it hadn't been detected before, that's a possibility. Some heart rhythms are just intrinsically abnormal. It can be genetic. Some people can have things like long QT syndrome and Brugada syndrome and other types of sometimes heritable uh, heart disease that is just rhythm-based and may have no structural heart problems at all. And those are very hard to detect. Um, And so it could have been a lot of different things that could cause this. Um, And then there's this, a lot of uh, news about this thing called commotio cordis, where you have 
essentially trauma to the chest at just the right time that can cause your rhythm to go off as well. That mm -hmm. tends to be a diagnosis of exclusion. And by that, I mean, you look for everything else under the sun before you're going to say it's that, but it's hard to say. It's hard to say exactly what happened to him. Um, fortunately, it does highlight the importance of early resuscitation and getting to the person immediately. Because when you start doing chest compressions and CPR, you are restoring that blood flow that otherwise wouldn't be getting to the brain. And so he started getting resuscitation very quickly. And if you notice now, he's been tweeting and sending messages and seems like he's doing quite well. If the circumstances would have been different, if that would have happened walking by himself with no bystanders around, then the outcomes could be very different. And so, you know, it's a, it's, it speaks to ha what happens when you have the right systems in place. So I want to do a comparison and I'm, I'm not going to show this to the public because it's too hard. I have a video of Hank Gathers, March 4th, 1990, basketball game. I think they were in California. Hank Gathers, wonderful player. He was a year older than me. So he's born in 67. So he would have been like 22 at the time. He goes up, makes a shot. Good shot. Like, I don't even watch basketball a lot, but it was it, like, it was beautiful. And then he comes down and he goes across the court and he kind of turns for a second and is, puts his hands on his knees. And you see this look just go across his face like something's not right. And he stands up and he falls to the ground in cardiac arrest. The next scene, like he's down and he's panicking. You can see he's panicking. And he sits back up and he looks, I believe it's a coach. He looks at the coach and kind of then falls into the, the coach's lap. He's in full cardiac arrest. And this is 1990. So pull yourself back to 1990 thinking technology and responses. They held his hand and they watched him. And he stops breathing. And his parents come down. And they're all holding his hands and they're just looking at him like somehow something was going to change just by staring at him. Nobody started compressions. There were no AEDs at that time in gyms. Paramedics would have defibrillators, but you'd have to get the paramedics there. There was no cell phone. There was no ability to call 911 really fast and start compressions and get instruction because you had wired phones at that point. So we lived in a very different world. But the imagery that I take from this is 33 years difference. There were hands on DeMar in seconds, like 10, 12 seconds. There were hands on him assessing, starting really good CPR right away. And that's the difference in survival. And if you see the Hank Gathers footage, it will break your heart. And if you see DeMars, it'll restore it because that's the difference of time, science, discussion, education, implementation, practice. We learned from tragedy. So um, I'm actually going to give a shout out to Hank Gathers and his family, wherever you are. I think you facilitated change and God bless you for it. And we have not forgotten you. So 
that's how I saw that. So it inspired me. So we're going to do something, Alex. So back in 2010, my nephew and I put together a program called Drill Dr. Heart. At that time, my nephew was doing some work for USA Volleyball and he was a collegiate coach, but he's also the son of a woman who died from sudden cardiac arrest in front of him when he was 13. So he comes with that learned experience of watching a trauma occur and watching somebody in full cardiac arrest in front of him. So it took him years to kind of put that experience on paper and what would he do? What do you want people to know? So we created Drill Dr. Heart, which is not teaching you CPR and AEDs. We're hoping that you've learned that already, but what you do in the actual moment of emergency to ensure that that chain of survival starts and we give that person a chance to survive. So we've repackaged it. It's gonna be launched in a couple of days, but this is the social media version because 2010, it was a PDF. So now we're going to offer a challenge. All of the details will be available soon, but here's the basics. Plan your drill, practice your drill, film your drill, post your drill, share your drill, and then you join the competition to potentially earn a free AED for your community. The drill with the most visits and engagements on social, we have a platform for it. We'll get the the prizes based upon um, their classification of organization. So we're hoping to give away four AEDs, possibly more, but we're committing to the four and we have some partners that are helping us do this. So if you want to contribute to the cause, there'll be a link soon so that you can contribute. And the more money we raise in this campaign, we're just going to buy AEDs with them. And we're just going to get them out there for anybody who wants to participate in the campaign. So please take the time, bring it to your school, your team, your workplace, your house of worship, your community, rec center, any place where humans meet and there are human hearts we need to make sure we have an action plan so that we can all have a response time more similar to DeMar's and not like Hank's. What do you think? It's great. Couldn't agree more. A lot of things that we have like bad outcomes that can be altered by that. Oh, good. Thanks. Kudos. Thank you. So two other things in popular media, the importance of knowing one's family heart health history. So a very famous family has a really bad history where the grandmother died at 47 the father died at 42, and the daughter dies at 54. We know the grandmother and the father's history, and we might even have a hint of some genetic information in this family. If your family looks like this family, what should they do, Alex? Yeah, so I I have patients that come see me all the time, especially if that's two generations back, someone died suddenly, almost always they were told it was a heart attack but they were like 30. Possible if you have certain other conditions that you could have a heart attack at 30, but it's pretty rare. And, and, you know, the data back then wasn't, you know, we didn't have the ability to do really extensive workups for patients. So it's just, oh, well, it was a, it was a heart attack. But then the next generation, someone else dies at 40 suddenly. And then now this generation, you have someone that's died young, you know, patients will come and we take a really thorough family history to try and figure out exactly what happened. And, and then we talk to them about what are the different ways that this could come about in a family. It, it is concerning if you have in multiple generations, what's thought to be sudden cardiac death at a young age, that it could be a whole slew of inherited heart diseases, whether it's cardiomyopathies like HCM 
or the opposite spectrum, DCM, where the heart gets dilated, or whether they're inherited arrhythmia syndromes, where the rhythms are abnormal. And so we usually start by doing a thorough genetic evaluation with our genetic counselor, and they draw a big family tree. And in those, a lot of times you will figure out, oh, wait, there's another person and another person, and they all happen to be on one side of the tree, and it's mm -hmm. every generation. And we're also looking for things like atrial fibrillation yeah. and heart failure yeah. and unexplained syncope, simple car transplant. accident. Someone and had needed a transplant and they never really talked about why. And so that is the importance of the genetic evaluation. And if it is, seems appropriate, then we talk about genetic testing. But at the very least, a clinical evaluation, looking at their heart and making sure that there's nothing structurally wrong. Because, you know, we do get, we see this all the time, because I see all inherited cardiomyopathies, not just HCM, where there's multiple generations of sudden death. And so, you know, having that knowledge is powerful because then you need to take advantage of that and make sure you don't carry something that you were unaware of. And you might be clo getting close to that age where multiple of your family members started having problems. I would say that if you have a history like that, any remaining family, first degree family of anybody that's been affected should be getting checked clinically, for, at least clinically. So the family I was referring to is the Presley family. And our hearts go out to them as they grieve the loss of Lisa Marie from sudden cardiac arrest. We don't know the cause, doesn't matter. We're humans and we care. And, you know, Elvis was kind of a big deal to a lot of people. And did he have, did he not have what diagnosis? We don't know specifically, but his mom passed away early. He passed away early. His daughter passed away early. Are there contributing factors? Probably, but this is a very significant family history. And it's not unlike a lot of other families that we see every day. So we just want to make sure that you're screening your family as well. Okay. So we're going to take a turn now to the movie theater. A Man Called Otto. Thank you, Mr. Hanks. So did you see the movie yet, Alex? I haven't had a chance to see it yet because work's been busy. My mother-in-law, who's visiting from Tennessee, saw it on Friday and was, she was like, I'm going to tell you. I was like, I already know. <laughs> uh, but she, she loved it. And she, I believe, had either seen the other there's like the a Swedish version version yeah. or at least read the book or she had, had been familiar with the story. So the, the story is a man called Ovir, Ove, Ove is how it's spelled. It's a Swedish book. It was a Swedish movie. But in this particular rendition, his name is now Otto. I did a whole talk on it already, so I'm not going to belabor the character so much. But to say we are now in public eye right now. For anybody who's watching a new Tom Hanks movie, which a lot of people watch Tom Hanks movies and his son plays young him in the movie, which is really kind of cool. His depiction of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, it's raw. It's real. It's a dark movie. I don't want you going in thinking it's, you know, Forrest Gump and it's light. Although some parts of Forrest Gump are kind of dark. This is a bit darker and he's grouchy and he's got some issues and life happens on top of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. To me, that's the most beautiful part of the movie because as we go through life, we get diagnosed and we keep moving. We go to work. Uh, we have symptoms. We still have to, you know, do the laundry at night. We're not feeling so great, but we still have that deadline due and we're going to meet our obligation. And we're living life with this thing sitting right next to us all the time. That's hi, I'm still here. And I could really screw with you if I wanted to right now. Just reminding you, bye-bye, go back to your life. And that's kind of how HCM has been in my life. It's fine for a while, then it comes back up, and it's fine for a while, it comes back up. 
and that's Otto too. But Otto's got maybe some control issues because some parts of his life he can't control and they're beyond him. And they come out in him becoming kind of grouchy. In the end, I think you see his big heart beautifully and how he treats others and how he chooses to, to live his life. Thank you, Mr. Hanks. I hope we talk to you soon, but I encourage everybody to see the movie. But sometimes, you know, movies don't really portray reality and our true lived experience with HCM. So unfortunately last year, Alex and I got to have something else in common. And that is the loss of a sibling to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And now I'm tearing up. Um, Alex, you lost your brother this summer. And that's why we haven't podcasted with you in a while because you needed some time. Um, and we really appreciate you coming back here. But do you have anything you want to tell us about your brother or about what you went through this year? Um, it's interesting you said that about, you know, we keep living our lives. And uh, HCM has given me, done a lot of tough things, but it's also given me a lot, you know. I started this path when I was 15 and at 34, I finally finished training and started seeing patients. And it was like, you know, I'm taking advantage of having this disease and trying to do something different with it. And it's almost like it came back and said, Hey, don't forget, I'm still here. And it took my brother a month after I finished training. Mm. he was wonderful he was a really really wonderful guy and it was sudden and it was unexpected um you don't you don't really get over that and so uh you just learn to move forward with it and that's what lisa told me a week after it happened when I talked to her. And so we're moving with him forward. And I miss him a lot and I talk about him every day and my little girl looks like him. And so that's a blessing. Uh, that's very sweet. Uh, it's nice to have that, that person there that has their essence and that you can see the past while looking at the future simultaneously. Yeah. There's, there's nothing for any of us who have lost somebody. There's two different losses in HCM. There's heart failure, death, and, and, and it's slow. And you kind of see things are happening. And then there's sudden death. And I don't know that there's any experience in life that can prepare you or help you process the sudden unexpected loss of somebody, be it by an accident by suicide, by sudden death, whatever that suddenness is, there is a shock to the core of your being that this isn't the way it's supposed to be. Like we're supposed to get that goodbye moment and we're supposed to wrap it all up in a nice package and say, it's been nice. And my father had the most beautiful death. His friends and family were around him. He was at peace and he was calm. And he said, I'm ready to go. And he went and that brought us peace. 
but my sister who just didn't get up one morning and that was it. There was no more phone call. She was gone. Like your brother, they're just gone. And there's nothing that takes that pain away. You learn to balance it. You learn to move on with daily life, but you're not moving past them. They move with you, but it sucks. (laughs) It hurts. It's grief. It ebbs and flows. And not going to lie, two days ago, out of where, getting ready for work, I just started crying at how much my sister missed and how much I miss her. It'll be 28 years. Still miss her. But I don't stop talking about her. Yeah. And look how much she's done. She's done amazing things. Yeah. And so is your brother. And, and he will. I'm about to go see four HCM patients after this talk. And, you know, I carry him with me in every visit. So he'll continue to do a lot. He, he because of you and his shared experience as teenagers diagnosed, he is part of why you chose the path you chose. I know you well enough to know you didn't choose it to make yourself feel better. You did it to make him feel better. You wanted answers for him and others. Yeah. And you have a unique perspective and a wonderful brain that can let you do both. Right. I'm going to use it for good. So Lori Peachy is commenting that she misses her brother too. And, you know, we, we've, many of us know, but because we know we're doing everything possible so that you never know. Yep. You may, Oh, that's our wish. That's my wish. That's why I do what I do every single day so that you don't have to know the bad stuff that we can just make it as good as possible, as quickly as possible. And we're here for you. Alex, I know it's been a really rough couple of months and the first year, really everything stings. The first, this, the first, that, the first, this is always with you. And we're thinking of him too. So thanks for sharing your very personal story. And I'm so sorry it ended the way that it did, but we're here today to do better for tomorrow. I always leave those conversations with a, but I can't just let them sit there because your brother's a teacher. My sister's a teacher. We learn things from them and, and we, they're here, they're palpable because they make us remember why we're doing what we're doing. And why did I, why am I working seven days a week? And why am I doing this? because we can make a difference with somebody else. So, and now I'm going to turn this whole conversation to make everybody just a little angry and a little mad (laughs) because it's getting too serious in here. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, I'm very upset to to tell y'all that I got an email last night from Amazon. Back in 2013, Amazon started a program called Amazon Smiles. And you could choose a charity of your choice and a percentage of everything that you bought that was qualified would go back to your charity of choice. So we promoted this program far and wide and we collected, it's not a big part of our budget, but a couple thousand dollars a year that helped us pay the bills here. And typically coming from people who don't have an opportunity to donate a lot of money, but a percentage of their purchase went to the charity of their choice, be it HCMA or otherwise. They're discontinuing the program and they have put more barriers in the place of like small programs like team sports to go through an application process. And maybe they'll give you something 
Otherwise, they've decided that they're going to put their money towards disaster relief, which is noble, and something with equity in housing for low-income individuals. Again, wonderful cause. But for those of you who are choosing maybe disease-based charities, there is no space for us any longer. We can't even apply for a grant. And I didn't I don't see the logic of this process. And if you want to write to Amazon and tell them that you'd like your Amazon smiles to stay active, they say that they're going to sunset at the end of February. I don't know if there's anything we can do to change it, but there's, I know there's a lot of small heart related charities, maybe those who provide AEDs or CPR training or community awareness of heart disease. They're all out too. So this is not just an HCMA thing. All these smaller charities that are looking for nickels and dimes everywhere they were getting it through their supporters that were buying through Amazon and that's gone now. So um, Jeff, we're disappointed. We think it's short-sighted. And if you'd like to reverse your decision, we would appreciate that. But if they don't, maybe we put our purchasing dollars elsewhere. On that note, Alex, thank you for sharing your story today and your brother and your perspectives. Great speaking with you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.